This podcast was supported by Grant 2016 MUMUK001, awarded by the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Department of Justice. Welcome, everyone, to the Reflections on Research podcast. I'm your host, Mike Geringer, Director of Research and Evaluation at Mentor, the National Mentoring Partnership. Just a reminder, this episode is brought to you as part of our work on the National Mentoring Resource Center, or the NMRC, and that is the nation's leading source of training and technical assistance for youth mentoring programs. The center is sponsored through a cooperative agreement with the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, or OJJDP, and you might hear us refer to them from time to time on this podcast. And they've got a long history of investing in youth mentoring research and programming. And we certainly thank them for their generous support of both cutting edge research and for projects like the NMRC that allow that research to reach a wider audience. If this is your first time listening to an episode of Reflections on Research, please know that you can always find not only new episodes, but the whole back catalog of uh, prior episodes of this series on the NMRC website at nationalmentoringresourcecenter.org.org. And you can always get the scoop on publications, research reviews, other work of the NMRC by subscribing to the center's e-newsletter, which is easy to do right there on the homepage of the website. So I'm really excited to talk with our guest today, as this represents the first time that we've actually had a practitioner join us here on the podcast, uh, joining Uh, in this case, the researcher who evaluated their program. And so I think it's going to be really neat to hear kind of how they collaborated with a researcher on the design of their evaluation. Uh, And, you know, here maybe hear a little bit about how they're using the findings uh, from that evaluation, either to promote the program or to improve services. So it's going to be a little bit of a different time here on Reflections on Research today, but I think it'll be really illuminating and, and really fun. So to that end, I'd like to introduce... Our first guest, and that is Elizabeth Higley. Uh, She is the founder and director of Great Life Mentoring, a youth mentoring program located in Vancouver, Washington, that focuses on mentoring relationships for youth with mental health challenges. Uh, Elizabeth has a certificate in addiction and mental illness from the University of Washington and is an agency certified counselor in Washington State. She has 20 years experience in mental health, seven years experience in education, and more than 25 years as a volunteer serving children and women in community and faith-based ministries. And it's a real treat to be talking with her about the amazing program that she founded. So welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, Mike. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Also joining us today is Dr. David Dubois. David is a professor within the School of Public Health at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And David also serves as the chair of the research board of the National Mentoring Resource Center. And, you know, really David's accomplishments in the mentoring space are are probably too numerous for us to get into here uh, in full, but you likely know him from his work on several meta-analyses over the years on the effectiveness of mentoring or from his uh, great work as co-editor of two editions of the Handbook of Youth Mentoring, which continues to be 
I think, some of the foundational research texts that our field has to draw from. And most importantly for our discussion today, David is uh, and was the principal investigator for the evaluation of the Great Life Mentoring Program. So welcome, David. Thank you, Mike. I'm really glad to have a chance to you know, do this interview. Great. So Elizabeth, I'm hoping you can start off by just describing the program a little bit for our audience. I mentioned a few of the basics there when I introduced you, but this is for youth who are in outpatient mental health services. And in fact, you partner directly with the Clark County Department of Community Services in uh, running the program, along with, I think, several other mental health providers in the, the region. So I'm just hoping you can tell us a little bit about the basics of the program and how you use mentors to support these young people. So Great Life Mentoring provides volunteer-based mentoring for children and youth who are from low-resource families, and they're receiving outpatient mental health care from any of the child-serving behavioral health care organizations in our area. The children are referred to the program by their mental health treatment provider and then matched with the Great Life Mentor, that person who they spend two to three hours for at least a year um, developing a relationship and engaging in positive community activities together. And unlike anyone else in the life of a system-involved child, the Great Life Mentor is there voluntarily, and this becomes a very personal relationship where the child is able to bond successfully with someone who is trustworthy and then develop a long-term supportive relationship with them. The mentor actually becomes an integral part of the child's mental health treatment plan and the professional team serving them. Our aim is to provide stability and reduce isolation for the children, but each match is tailored to the individual needs of the child and their own personal treatment plan. Great. Thank you, Elizabeth. So you're the founder of of this program, and I'm just curious, going back uh, many years now, what led you to start this program? What led you to believe that mentoring was a missing piece for these young people? And and how did you start building up the program in collaboration with your, your funders and partners? I am uh, the founder of Great Life Mentoring, but it was actually the Clark County Department of Community Services that had the idea to use volunteer support to support the children in therapy. So I was actually hired to create this model. And I came to the project with a background in education and social work, as you mentioned, and having been a mentor myself, it was a really perfect fit. I had perspectives on what to do and what not to do, but I have to say it was really my own personal heart and drive that led the way in creating Great Life Mentoring. I really recognized this work as a calling. And from there on, for the past 20 years now, I've acted as a kind of protective parent, if you will. I've really taken this role with a sincere responsibility because we're being entrusted with the lives of these children. The children are vulnerable. Mentoring is a trust institution. So we need to be certain that we are in fact helping along with these strong philosophies. I built the program to include careful screening, training, and follow through. Those things were really instinctive for me. And once uh, once the elements of effective practice came out nationally, I made sure I was in line with all of those recommendations and then exceeded uh, the elements wherever I felt necessary for my particular model. Great. Thank you, Elizabeth. And I especially appreciate what you noted there about wanting to be cautious in working with these young people and wanting to make sure that you did it 
right? Uh, I know a lot of mentoring programs are kind of reluctant to wade into the space that you're in where you're really explicitly, you know, identifying, working with, and and kind of diving into the mental health side of things. I mean, obviously, many mentors, you know, help their mentees with, you know, depressive symptoms and just the ups and downs of being a child or a teenager. Um, but I, I feel like there's a caution around going into the space that you went into. And and you mentioned a few things there that I think really allow you to do that in a, a safe way. And so I want to unpack some of the, the details of your, your model here a little bit. Let's start with the volunteers. You mentioned that I'm just curious, who tends to volunteer in your program? This isn't signing up to be a, a lunch buddy or a big brother, big sister. You know, this has a little bit more intensity to it. So who tends to sign up and what are critical skills that they perhaps already bring to your program by the time they sign up? Uh, well, it's it's very interesting to me that it's not people who are sitting around with nothing to do who become mentors. We find that great life mentors are already uh, people that are very busy with their own full schedules, but they have an ability to manage manage those schedules well. Now, working with children is not a prerequisite. Our training and support help the volunteers to to become successful mentors. So it's not um, a number of skills that they need to bring with them already prepared. But there are some necessary and critical elements. For example, we need to be sure that the volunteer is uh, committed, that they're consistent, trustworthy, and stable people in their own right. Um, their own mental and emotional health need to be in a t- intact. And if we're, if we're not certain of a mentor's maturity in a variety of areas like that, we just can't give them access to our kids. I appreciate you really noting that you're looking for people that have stability in, in their own lives. And I think sometimes mentoring programs feel like, well, you know, we're desperate for volunteers. We need to Keep an open mind as to who, you know, is going to be able to to effectively mentor in our program, but I think wind up compromising sometimes. And it sounds like you've really put an emphasis on kind of quality and and making sure that everyone who's going to be working with one of your young people is is up to the challenge and is going to be kind of responsible and and able to to do it the right way. And I, I really appreciate that. You do a lot of training, right? So most mentoring programs, we did a national survey at Mentor maybe two years ago. The average program is doing maybe two and a half hours of pre-match training, maybe an hour at some point during the year. Uh, But you do quite a bit more training than that. So I want to say it's like 20 hours at least of training uh, before they can be matched. Uh, What are some of the essential things you cover in that that 20 hours? What do you really emphasize when preparing mentors to work with your young people? Uh, Yes, we do uh, require the volunteers all to successfully complete this training, and it is about 20 hours before becoming a Great Life Mentor. The training is essential to our success, so that is required, but it's really a wonderful time where um, where we're getting to know this volunteer and they're getting to know us. So it's not, it, it doesn't seem to be a burden on the volunteers to spend the 20 hours. It's, uh, it's a time that really enhances our relationship with them before they get matched. So at any rate, the, you asked about the training details. It includes education on mentoring youth with mental health and complex needs. 
But I would say that what's most important is my healthy relationships curriculum. And that's the section where we're really able to determine if the volunteer is a right fit for great life mentoring. Uh, That section includes things like emotional health, self-awareness, communications and boundaries, topics of that nature. You know, I would certainly encourage any program that's going to be working with youth, uh, whether it's mental health needs or some other elevated level of risk in their lives. You know, this is the kind of the amount of training that I think is needed to really prepare people for that. And also, as you said, to get a sense of uh, how are they going to be when they're in relationship with this young person? You can often get a pretty good sense of how they will act or react to stressful situations by putting them in scenarios and things like that during training. So it sounds like you really use training as almost another screening step uh, to see if these folks are the right fit. You mentioned two things there. You mentioned um, scenarios and also screening. And so you also instinctively understand that, that, that that's what we're doing in that time period. We are checking to make sure that the mentor is showing up on time uh, for us. That helps us to, that builds our confidence that they're going to show up on time for the child. And the scenarios, we have several hours that we will do scenarios throughout the training time where we give the mentor a chance to imagine a situation they might be in. And then based on the skills that we've just trained them in, they get to practice. So Elizabeth, I wanted to ask you a quick follow-up around the training that you do for mentors. How do you prepare young people for the mentoring uh, experience? These are kids that obviously have other uh, adults uh, helping them and in their lives in different caring capacities, but how do you prepare them for a mentoring relationship? What do you tell the young people? Uh, well, the, ch- the children receive an orientation from our program specialist after already having heard about the program from their mental health therapist. We want to be sure that we're really managing expectations well. So um, one important point is for the child to understand the nature of the mentor as a volunteer. They need to understand that the mentor is a mandated reporter and how they fit into the treatment team. So things like that uh, we're informing the child about. We also want the child to know that their mentor needs to earn their trust and to take it slow in this relationship, also to be relying on the team, understanding that this will be a long-term relationship. So this orientation is a good time for us to inform the child, certainly, but it's also a good time for the program specialist to be getting to know the child and their interests. And those kinds of things will help the program specialist to solidify the most compatible match by having gotten to know the child a little bit better. So I find it really interesting, Elizabeth, that your mentors work directly with, uh, at some level, the clinicians and the Great Life staff in a collaborative relationship where they really explore how the mentor can best support the youth's treatment plan. How much interaction do mentors wind up having with clinicians or, or with your staff uh, in terms of, you know, what are we doing? How can we all be on the same page? Um, and how do you go about making sure that that the mentor is really best positioned to help the young person and not get out of their lane, so to speak, kind of do the things the mentor should do in support of, of the treatment plan for the young person? Well, to start with, the mental health treatment plans and goals are determined between the therapist and their client. That's the child. And then 
if they believe that a great life mentor would be an asset to helping the child uh, achieve these goals, they reach out to us, we find a suitable mentor, make the match, and then we support the match. And the, this program specialist that I spoke about earlier is the one who is the primary liaison between the therapist treatment plan, the child, their parent, uh, their foster parent or guardian, uh, the mentor, and then any other professionals on the team, such as a social worker, a caseworker, or a teacher if relevant, and so on. So it's really the work of the Great Life Mentoring Program Specialist to stay on top of managing these needs and relationships. The mentor does connect directly with the therapist on an as-needed basis, and that can typically be something that happens during a time of crisis or if there's not a crisis in which they need to speak with them, they may just um, meet with them annually to check in and find out how they're doing. The other scenario might be that um, if a child is involved in a wraparound team, then that particular regular meeting schedule is something that the mentor would would be a part of directly. So again, it's it, it's typically the responsibility of the program specialist to be managing all of those relationships. And that person does the management of the relationship through a variety of things. We have mentors fill out a a contact note every time they contact the child. So whether it's even just a phone call, they make note of that. But every time that they see the the child in person, which is weekly, they would be filling out the, the details of that encounter. And then the program specialist is managing that. So Uh, She can reach out to the mentor and provide suggestions, helpful directions, whatever might be necessary. And then she also, I'm speaking she because our program specialist is Cindy Fritz, she will um, meet one-to-one with the mentors in person for her own supervision, regardless of, of how well the match is going. So that's a time where they can either manage any challenges that they're having, or it can just be a time where she is encouraging the mentor in in that relationship. Thanks, Elizabeth. I want to ask one other question around just uh, the activities that your mentors engage in. And you mentioned here that, uh, you know, a lot of times the mentor is just a supplement to an existing treatment plan and that, you know, there is some coordination with that clinician, but a lot of times that's going through uh, your staff person. And I'm just curious as to something, how often are your mentors tasked with helping to deliver some kind of evidence-based intervention through their interactions with the young person? The reason I'm asking is we've had a couple of guests on our podcast this year, uh, Gene Rhodes, Sam McQuillan, a couple of researchers that feel like there's a missed opportunity with the nation's mentors and that if we just train them up a little bit more on how to do certain evidence-based practices, whether that's something like motivational interviewing or even some basic cognitive behavioral stuff, that they could be good deliverers of mental health uh, services for children who have kind of, you know, lower level symptoms and, and issues. Do your mentors do any of that? Or are your mentors there strictly to be kind of a broad support that keeps the youth on their treatment plan, but not necessarily the deliverer of any of that? Uh, it, that's that's a really great question, and I would say that it is not super intentional that the mentor be keeping in mind um, at all times what's happening with it on that treatment plan. 
because this relationship is intended to be unconditional, where the mentor holds an unconditional positive regard for the child and it's just fully empathetic and accepting them as they are. So there's nothing, there, there's no uh, like, like parenting or um, specific clinical work that happens with the mentor. However, in the Great Life Mentoring Training, we do include a number of things. You mentioned mentor motivational interviewing, for example. We also do uh, empowerment and encouragement and praise versus praise versus encouragement, different things uh, within our training that the mentors are practiced at. So they are, they're using empathy and they're using motivational interviewing and they're being non-judgmental in their, in their relationship and in their encounters with the child. So it happens very naturally as opposed to clinically. Does that answer your question? That does. Thank you. Now, and I really appreciate something you said in there, which is Kind of this notion of unconditional love and not judgmental support, right? And I think, you know, I, I talk to a lot of researchers who are always very obsessed, I think, with um, asking volunteers to step into kind of these paraprofessional roles. And, and as I mentioned in my question, you know, be the deliverer of some proven intervention. But I often feel like the best thing that sometimes a volunteer especially can do is just provide love and some good times and some feelings of belonging and a sense of self. And, and, you know, those are kind of soft, mushy things that often aren't tracked in program evaluations, right? Where you're trying to answer some policy level question of, you know, did this get youth out of, out of treatment or lessen their symptoms? And then that's all good. And we'll talk about that with David uh, here in a minute, but I love the fact that you were grounding all of this work in just unconditional love, and uh, there's something very genuine about that, and, and I often don't hear programs talk about their work in that way, so I, I really appreciate that. It's really an honor to be able to be in a position to, to offer that and to help people to recognize the value of that, as particularly for our kids who are so system-involved and there are goals and requirements for all of their relationships except the mentor. And the mentor can provide this deep, compassionate listening. And it is, in fact, healing. And the kids have reported to us things like, the time with my mentor is a relief from my own behaviors because it's, it's this opportunity to be free of stress and um, completely yourself, accepted as you are, and so the the kids can really blossom when when they are so well received and cared for. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. That was wonderfully put, and uh, and I hope that all the kids in your program wind up feeling uh, that freedom and um, that at ease with their their mentors. So, David, I'd love to bring you into the conversation here, and I'd like to start off by just asking, kind of how you and Elizabeth wound up uh, getting together and doing this work. I'm curious as to how you found each other and, and how you agreed to do uh, this program evaluation. What's the, the backstory to that? So Elizabeth, check me on this, please. But my recollection is that uh, Janet Hubach of Washington, what was then uh, went by the name Washington State Mentors, you kind of did a matchmaker on us knowing that you were already looking at uh, and wanting to strengthen, you know, the, the rigor of your evidence base in terms of what you could uh, 
point to in terms of the impact of the program and, and learn from that. And had been working with folks in Washington State uh, around that and, and had already had done a, a, a nice evaluation of length of, uh, length of time and treatment with somebody there at the uh, University of Washington. So that was my recollection of, you know, kind of a, a brokering, a, a, you know, a, from, from a third party that saw us as, as being, uh, you know, perhaps a good fit in terms of uh, doing some work together. <laughs> What's your recollection? Yes, absolutely. I have Janet to thank for introducing us for this work together. Well, great. I'm glad there was a connection with one of our affiliates, and I, I didn't even know about that. So uh, that's great that she was able to make the connection between you two. And, you know, certainly that's something I, I hope uh, our affiliates do uh, from time to time when programs are ready to take that next step in evaluation is helping them find somebody who'd be interested in their work and who uh, would do a nice job with, with the evaluation. So that's great to see that we are playing that role as we should as mentor. And I want to get into the results at some point here, David. Obviously, we, you know, our audience is going to be keen to find out you know, just kind of what you found about the effectiveness of great life mentoring. But I wanted to spend just a little bit of time uh, discussing the methodology that you use to evaluate the program. Uh, this was not a, a random controlled trial for a variety of reasons uh, that I'm hoping you can explain, but uh, you wound up doing something that's called a match comparison design, where you were comparing uh, the great life mentees to a very similar uh, group of young people that were from the same mental health agency, but who had not been referred to the program for a variety of of reasons. So I'm hoping you can tell our audience a little bit about why you chose that design, the strengths, maybe the limitations of that kind of design, and and how do you ensure that the young people who weren't referred aren't really different in some way from the kids who did get referred. So I'm hoping you can maybe break that down a little bit for our listeners. So uh, this this matching design that we use uh, is essentially kind of a computerized version of what folks listening to this may be familiar with in terms of kind of thinking about hand matching, right? It's like, okay, we've got a nine-year-old male youth served by GLM who is, um, you know, uh, is white and has a, a primary diagnosis. In this case, they would have one of ADHD, uh, lives in, uh, you know, with grandmother so forth and so on, uh, has or has not had involvement with the juvenile system. I'm mentioning variables that we ended up considering. But to go and find an exact youth with those characteristics is is, is all but impossible unless you have just a, a huge universe to pull from. What more you know, contemporary methods do is they make sure that the overall mix of youth that you pull in as your matched comparison sample on average will mirror as closely as possible, certainly not to any significant difference on all measured characteristics that you have, which we'll talk about that, that qualification in a, in a moment here. And so that you can at least say on average, there may not be a mirror of that particular youth, but on average, you've got the same percentage of male youth, same percentage of youth with ADHD diagnosis, involvement in the juvenile system, and so on. And this approach only works well, for the most part, when A, you've got relevant variables to match on, right, that you think have to do with what this young person's future outcomes are going to look like, right? 
because that's what you want to control for. You don't want to be attributing outcomes in the future to the program when, in fact, maybe the program was serving youth who were more or less inclined to, to otherwise show um, growth in, in those outcomes. So that's one thing. You need, need a good, rich set of variables. And in, that, in this case, we very much did because of the ability with the partnership to access the, in a non-identified way, uh, the, the um, you know, service uh, record information that uh, Columbia River Mental Health uh, Services uh, has um, for the youth that they serve and has had over a number of years, which leads into the next condition for this method to work, which is a pretty large pool of youth. So even though you're not looking for exact matches, you still need to have a good pool to get that subgroup that's going to be a good match with the program uh, youth. Um, And in fact, this method is fairly stringent in that if there are some youth in the program uh, group, so to speak, who really are just so unusual that you can't find even approximate matches for them, they call them like the nearest neighbor as you go through this uh, process, and there's a kind of a, a metric for that, they throw them out. Right, because rather have a, a somewhat smaller sample that can be be a good match um, to the to the non-program group. So in our case, we started with 91 youth uh, who had been served by Great Life Mentoring over a you know a period of I think more than a decade. I'd have to look up the exact uh, period of time, and uh, we ended up with 66 of those youth in the final match sample because there was that uh, subgroup that we really just weren't able to find good matches for uh, neighbors for on these various variables within a group of about 400 youth not in the program, not referred to the program as you as you, you know, nicely described, uh, also served by Columbia River Mental Health um, uh, Services. And so, you know, all the way back to when they came to get services, because of course, services change over time, age, gender, race, ethnicity, number of other demographic variables, and our outcome measure, uh, which is something called the Children's Global Assessment Scale, which is uh, a measure that had been used uh, in Columbia Mental Health, uh, River Mental Health System uh, services for, for you know, that period of time. And, and uh, it's essentially, it's, it's a well-validated scale used in children's mental health uh, settings across the country. And on a zero to 100 scale, how would you characterize this child's overall social, emotional, behavioral functioning? And so we were able to kind of get a, a pre-GLM you know, sounding of that from the, and actually kind of a trend line, because they, you know, they would do this not on a particular schedule, but periodically. And so we had often more than one data point before they got mentored. And we'd find youth who were mashed on that. One example, uh, just to kind of bring this to life a little bit, uh, of the 91 served by GLM, 23% had a primary diagnosis of ADHD. In the pool of 400 that we were drawing the matching sample from, it was only 9.5%. So that's a very significant difference, right? And we know that ADHD, along with other kinds of mental health challenges, but particularly as youth move into adolescence, it it unfortunately can, can be a harbinger of significant adaptational challenges that unfortunately, again, you know, often intensify in adolescence. Uh, whereas once we were done, 
we had 16.7% in GLM and 18.2% in the, the match sample, a non-significant difference, and actually even flipped a little bit to, to more in the, in the match sample. But it was, again, just noise at that point. So you're really looking for those kinds of differences and to narrow them. So David, let's get right into the the findings here. I know you know there were a lot of good results uh, from the evaluation that you did, and uh, you looked at I believe a couple of big outcomes. One is improvement in that overall functioning, and I believe that was done through that scale that you mentioned earlier. And also, if youth had ended their services, I think obviously one of the goals of this program is to keep young people on their treatment plan and keep them you know, getting the help that they need from the clinical side of things. Uh, so what did you, you find in terms of outcomes? So um, both of those measures, and that was, those were our measures since, you know, we did not have the resources to survey either the youth, the parents, or the therapists, you know, to get, oh, first of all, a lot of these were historically, it would have been way past the point in which we would have been able to do that. We also didn't have the resources. So, but the, kind of provided a uh, an opportunity as well. And there's been a complaint in the medical public health literatures that interventions often don't have, evaluations don't have measures that are of direct relevance to practitioners and, and practice settings. And so they, there's this movement towards what's called pragmatic trials. You, know, you have an outcome measure that would be inherently meaningful and understandable, comprehensible, uh, probably using words that don't exist, um, <laughs> to uh to a practitioner. So in our case, they're already using what we you know, refer to as a C-gas, that, that zero to 100 scale, and certainly something that you know, they, they look at in terms of tracking you know, that's their meaningful youth outcome. And also, clearly, you, know, you want young people. I myself uh, have, have uh, been a, a child clinician for, for a number of years, child uh, mental health clinician, and, you know, you want that young person to engage and you want them to kind of have a course of treatment, right? And it's not a clearly defined, you know, we have an eight session treatment for this and I want to get you through all eight sessions. Life doesn't really work that cleanly uh, in real world practice settings, but you do have a sense of when you've reached a natural point where it makes sense to, and seems, you know, clinically advisable to discontinue uh, treatment, at least for the time being. And the GLM youth were uh, notably more likely, and keeping in mind, we do have a small sample, um, but were notably more likely with, within our sample to have a, by the records data, a planned ending to treatment. So of those 66 youth in our uh, GLM group, 32% had a planned ending to treatment. And then in the comparison group, it was just um, 18%. Now, you might think those numbers are low, and, and, and I suppose they are, but engagement of particularly low-resource families uh, over time in mental health treatment is a well-documented challenge. And uh, so one of the things we're excited about with these preliminary results is that it would seem that uh, GLM may be uh, serving an important role in, in sustaining engagement in treatment. Um, and you could come up with lots of hypotheses about why that might be, right? Uh, which 
be interesting to discuss. But uh, at least as an endpoint, that 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 seems like uh, you know very well is plausible based on the data. They also, as rated by the clinicians who are providing services to them, not you know it's a quote non-reactive measure, right? This is not anything knowing we were studying GLM or anything like that. Just giving their honest appraisal that the youth served by GLM, they showed a pattern of kind of uh, before getting into GLM, and that was a varying amount of time, right? But let's let's just say you know uh, several months. It's just I'd have to look up the exact amount. They they look probably even a little longer than that. They're stable on their these, uh, these CGAS scores I mentioned, and then they show a trend of going up all the way out to the data get a little shakier in terms of how how uh, rich they are to make estimates, but uh, out to two years you know into the program, and I will say feel more confident about a year into the program because we have more data points to to draw on. Whereas the comparison group actually looked like they were doing on an upward trajectory prior to their match counterpart, the same period of kind of, obviously they didn't get GLM, but over that same phase of treatment, they were showing some improvement. And then their their trend line, that group goes down. So if you can kind of picture that a little bit, it's um, it's uh, you know a fairly striking preliminary picture of of how clinicians saw the two groups, which really diverged in a way that was statistically uh, noteworthy. I'll say at, at the point of, of entering into GLM, and I should caution on all of this. It's a small sample. It's not a randomized trial, as we mentioned. So these are preliminary data. One of the things I get very exercised about is not practitioners taking information from research and, you know, kind of applying it without, you know, qualifications. I, I, I feel like that's kind of on our job as researchers to help them do that in, a, in, a, in an appropriate way. And so in this case, you would often see researchers say, GLM had effects on this. Well, I don't know if it had effects on this. We have evidence that is consistent with, and you know, I'm sorry if I'm using too many words for you, Mr. or Ms. Editor, uh, or practice brief writer, <laughs> but we have evidence that, that this is the case, right? And that evidence will become more, something we can put more stock and stronger language in over a series of, of studies. And of course, even that, you know, if, if it had gone the other way, we'd probably put less stock in it because it's so unexpected and and, and not true of, of a lot of, you know, hopefully most mentoring programs. So again, we have some, some optimism, but, uh, and, and the findings are, you know, certainly, uh, I say encouraging, um, but we definitely are needing to do uh, a next step in all this work. I've got one last question for you, Elizabeth, uh, and it's related to kind of the findings from your evaluation. Uh, have you made any changes in the program in light of what David and Carla found? Did you, you know, tweak any practices or did you learn anything about your program that surprised you that you've, you know, subsequently tried to address? That's a great question. Uh, and we we have not, uh, we didn't have any, it, it wasn't surprising to us, the findings from, from David and Carla's research. Uh, and we have not yet made any changes as a result, but as David will um, tell you, we have um, hopes and plans for future research projects. So there certainly is opportunity to be 
learning from the results of additional research that we will do and how that might impact the model. We're certainly open to improving at all times. I think one of the first things that is important to emphasize in, in, in just talking about that is how committed uh, Elizabeth and, and you know, her companion stakeholders, but particularly her, uh, she has been in uh, her steadfast commitment to not just getting you know preliminary data, which took a lot of work, you know, unfunded for all of us in terms of just you know getting that preliminary research out, but then making the the commitment to try to get the resources needed and the and the buy-in needed from from local stakeholders to pursue a kind of gold standard, if you will, uh, efficacy uh, trial where you do have that coin flip in terms of who who gets the added. Um, services of GLM versus not among those referred to the program. And so that, you know, is a, is a risky endeavor because we know in it, when you move from those less controlled studies to the more controlled studies, you typically see a drop off in, in effectiveness. And, and certainly, you know, it's almost like you can imagine, you know, a, a, a practitioner saying, you know, I'm good. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm picturing that uh, that old, the game show, uh, you know, not let's make a deal, but the one where they kind of are you good to stop now uh, with Howie Mandel or not? Right. It's like deal or no deal. And they're like, deal. I'll take my preliminary efficacy data and go home <laughs> because this is, this is going to work well for me. Right. But Elizabeth really wants to take it to the next level, knowing that there's no guarantees in what we'll find, except that we'll, we'll learn. We'll learn some really important insights about the program. And so we, we have been pursuing that. It is sometimes challenging to get more local programs like this to attract funding for that kind of research because uh, many funders are interested in programs that already have this larger footprint. And yet we know, I think it's fair to say, that with getting that larger footprint often comes some challenges about implementation, fidelity, program intensity needed to be maybe, you know, scaled down some in order to get it to that scale and those sorts of things. So I think there's a really important place for taking these kind of more local programs that have been developed with the kind of care and, and, and long-term, you know, kind of iteration and, and evolution that has gone into GLM and give those the chance to be evaluated. But even just getting the sheer number of participants that those kind of funders will look toward, um, trying to make the case that, you know, this is a portable program. We think Lisbeth can't be, poor, you know, uh, you know, unfortunately uh, teleported across all the places we'd, we'd want to have her. But, you know, there is you know such a good manualization to it and, and so forth that we feel that's the case. So, it's been challenging. We we got close on one funder, and they came back and said, "We just didn't, you know, we just didn't think you had a large enough sample. We're not sure your effects are going to be large enough to detect with that size sample. Otherwise, we love your research. Thank you." Um, and uh, so, you know, there you have it. But we're working on it, and I think there's it's really important that, that these kind of programs have this, you know, the opportunity to to receive evaluations, not only the the, the, the larger ones I mentioned, which I'm involved in, as, as both you know, uh, as well, uh, Big Brothers, Big Sisters being a, a prime example. 
Well, thank you, David. And yeah, I, I definitely agree that we need a way of getting more kind of grassroots and local programs like Elizabeth's to um, that highest bar of evidence. And I, I think that's a real challenge for our field and uh, for a bunch of reasons uh, that you you know just touched on a couple of them, you know, sample size, those types of things. But uh, I think that's really important because I think the most innovative and often the best work that I see in our field is being done uh, kind of quietly in small communities and and in programs that no one's ever heard of and, and aren't you know don't have a ten person marketing team behind them, uh, but they're doing really fantastic things for for young people. So I, I hope you're successful in in getting that next phase of the evaluation um, funded and and underway. I want to go back and ask about something that you touched on when you were talking about the outcomes of the program and something that really struck me that I, I'm wondering if it's an influence on those outcomes, and that is the average length of match in this program. And I don't remember the exact number from the evaluation uh, report, but it, I want to say it was three or four years on average. Uh, you know, that's much longer than I think most mentoring programs are able to produce. So I'm just curious from your perspective, David, did you find any evidence that length of match was predictive of those outcomes or uh, if not, just in general, how how important do you feel that long-term match here is to achieving these outcomes for these particular youth? We were actually kind of blessed with a limited amount of variability in the length of relationships over the time period that they were in treatment. As I mentioned, really, once you went into a, out to a year into GLM, it started to get pretty you know, sketchy coverage of the next year. Because again, we were only getting clinician ratings, right? When they were still in treatment. Uh, and I don't, you know, think this is something we've really picked up on in this interview necessarily, or if, to the extent we have, I'll just reemphasize it, that one of the really exciting parts of this program, as I see it, is that it is not intended to provide support for the young person only while they're in treatment. It is um, intended to be a relationship that can sustain itself uh, through GLM, separate from, uh, you know, kind of simultaneous uh, engagement in mental health services, which they'll all have at the starting point. Um, so we were able to show, you know, if we're looking at the program records and so forth, that there were, you know, and, and Elizabeth knows this, it was a question of kind of just really more tallying it up for presentation to a, to a research uh, audience that uh, they really quite reliably got to the one year. So there was very little, what we call, you know, we often call in the field premature closure. And of the ones that had closed, because there was, there was a lot, you know, a, a minority were still o o open, you know, even though they may have been started, you know, years ago. But just looking at the ones that had actually had, a, had an ending, the average was 66 uh, months. So, you know, that really, I think, gives you a flavor right there, right? And there were some extreme ones there, right? That probably pulled the average out. But again, really remarkable. One of the things we would like to look at uh, in, the, in, the, in the next study is that period of um, longer time period that extends into what we might call aftercare in, in the clinical services literature, right? Which is another really big topic because we know, especially youth from high need, uh, low resource backgrounds will often, you know, kind of you know, be coming back into treatment with quite a bit of regularity because it's hard to maintain the gains um, in the settings that they're, they're, you know, 
they're you know they and their families are are you know faced with on a day to day basis. And Elizabeth, just real quick, from your perspective, how do you think you've been able to facilitate these longer term matches? Is it just the you know the will and the dedication of the people that you recruit? I know we talked earlier about you know you uh, are pretty picky about who you allow to be a mentor. Or, you know, is it some other factor, the support that you give them over time? Uh, What do you attribute that length of match to? I would say that both the mentor retention and the match length actually start at the screening stage. So uh, in Great Life Mentoring, we might only have, say, one or two matches for every six applications we receive. So if we were motivated by numbers, if I, there was a certain quota that I had to fill and I had pressure for that, um, I might be you know, pressured into making more matches, but instead I can just take those who ethically I feel are absolutely the best. And those are the, those are the mentors that we give to our kids. And then yes, we do provide so much ongoing support that we're really developing a relationship with the mentors who are serving our kids. So I think it's it's the relationship, it's uh, this extremely careful screening. And and so those are the kinds of things that I think have to do with the, with the longevity of the matches. Thanks to both of you for kind of explaining a little bit about what goes into creating those longer term matches. And Elizabeth, I love the fact that you mentioned kind of your ethical principle of, you know, I'm not doing this at scale for scale's sake or because some funder is mandating 100 matches a year, I serve the young people that I think we can do a good job with and that I've got somebody who's a good match for them. And and I just really appreciate um, that sentiment and the care and, and caution with which you're introducing mentors into these kids' lives. And it sounds like, uh, you know, there isn't one secret to the the secret sauce here, but um, I hope other practitioners that are listening to this uh, are taking note of the types of things that you're doing and the decisions that you're making, because I, I think they all add up to, what was that average match length, David, 66 months? That's a long time. So um, I want to wrap up here in and ask you both the bonus question, which is something I'm asking all of our podcast guests this year. And that is, if you had a magic wand and could wave it and change anything about the youth mentoring field, or Elizabeth, if you want to make this about your program in particular, feel free. But I'm just curious, if you could wave that magic wand, what would you change about youth mentoring? Uh, We'll start with you, David. Thanks, Mike. You always ask those those really good questions in the the closing parts of these interviews. I always enjoy them, except when I have to answer one. Um, So, for me, uh, and I hope you'll you'll play this for David Shapiro, the CEO of Mentor, because you might be surprised because this isn't what you often hear from researchers. I'd like to see the mentoring gap closed. I'd like to see that there be the infrastructure built, the commitment of funding provided, and the cultural ethos developed to put a serious dent in the gap between young people who not just by adult assessment need mentors, but who say either at the time in their development, I would like a mentor or looking back as young adults, uh, as in the mentoring effect was found, would have really liked, you know, could see one or more times when the parts of their, their, their growing up when that would have been beneficial. So 
I, I like to see us do more with that around those those kinds of drivers for for getting high quality mentoring, uh, be much more of a normative uh, experience for, for for young people in this in this country and elsewhere. Thank you, David. I appreciate that incredibly self serving answer from my perspective. So. But I, I, you know, that is the work of mentors to build that infrastructure. And I'm glad you mentioned kind of the almost the public will to make that happen, because I think if we're going to grow this movement to scale and get more mentors to every young person who wants one, uh, that's going to require the American people, I think, at, at a population level to value some different things spend their time a little bit differently and have, you know, their values reflected in in how and when they show up for for young people. So it's a multi-front effort uh, on that end. And I think you'll see some research things coming out of Mentor in the next two or three years that speak to many of the aspects of of that infrastructure and kind of public engagement that uh, you mentioned. Uh, Elizabeth, how about you? What's your magic wish for the mentoring field? Uh, yes, I really do love that um, image of having a magic wand. <laughs> and so I like this question. And it is really for me, what we were just talking about, uh, prioritizing quality over quantity. I've just been so blessed by the respect and the visionary support of my funder to allow me to emphasize quality over quantity and not be pressured by those numbers, that that is truly what I believe has um, directly affected my mentor retention rate and my average match length. And then I believe the stronger mental health outcomes for the child as a result. So I'm just really hoping that over time, uh, David and Carla and I together with uh, the rest of our team can produce enough research on the program that it might influence the field in this way so that if we really have enough support to show that this this careful way of caring for kids with great structure is the way to truly help their own mental health conditions and their lives, then we might be able to help influence funders to reduce the burden on the programs across the country who really might be pressured into making matches that, that will fill their quota but won't ensure the kind of help that the child actually needs, and in some cases may actually be harmful. So I'd really like to thank Elizabeth and David for a great conversation today. Really enjoyed learning about the program and learning about the great results that seem to be coming out of this program. And I really do hope you uh, get funding to do that RCT because I'd like to see this program replicated and and done in other locations because I think you really have a great model for offering these young people some fantastic support from a mentor to go along with the clinical treatment they're already getting. And and if that can work for young people and really provide solutions, then I'd love to see that taken to scale. So best of luck with all of that. And thank you so much for telling us about the program today. And I'd also like to note for our audience that we've got one more episode of Reflections on Research to be part of the uh, season two here. So keep an eye on the NMRC website in the next month or so for that final episode to go up. And uh, as always, if you want to make some improvements in your program or get some help or technical assistance in improving some aspect of your services for young people, you can always get that help through the NMRC by requesting free technical assistance. There's a big red button on the top of the homepage of the NMRC website. And if you click that button uh, and fill out the little form, 
We'll get you connected to one of our cadre of experts around the country and get you up to 40 hours of free technical assistance improving whatever it is you'd like to make changes in in your program. So it's a fantastic resource, free to you, and I really encourage any program that wants to do their work a little bit better to take advantage of our expert consultants. So on behalf of OJJDP and the National Mentoring Resource Center, thank you again for joining us. And remember, the research may seem definitive, but I really think we determine what's valuable and meaningful in our field through discussions about research like this and through keeping open hearts and minds. So thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Reflections on Research. 